There's a very serious increase among the people in our nation in the area of anxiety and fear about the future. There's some that look at it with an awful lot of foreboding. And this happens to be in a time where we are more economically prosperous and have more resources than we've ever had before as a people. And it's rather interesting. As our prosperity goes up and as our opportunities go up, so do the fear and anxiety. And it could very well be that when you have more you have more to fear because you've got more to lose in many ways. Uh, in fact, someone has coined the term PTSD, and not just post-traumatic stress disorder, but pre-traumatic stress disorder. Having trauma before a distressing event ever occurs. And, and it's a real challenge. It's a real problem. Sometimes it paralyzes people into fear and keeps them from making a decision in a variety of areas of life, whether it's about relationships, whether it's about school or vocations, whatever it may be. There are some that are really struggling with pre-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they're not like the little boy I heard about that was at a mall and he was standing by the escalator at the bottom of it. And uh, one of the security uh, employees came up and asked him, said, young man, are, are you lost? He said, no. She said, well, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm just waiting for my bubble gum to come back around. You know, he was pretty optimistic. He was pretty optimistic. Hey, he wasn't the first boy to do that, by the way, okay? Uh, Obadiah is going to help us with this this morning. Obadiah, verse number 17 to 21, the shortest book in the Old Testament. And here, God declares himself the king and savior and promises Israel a great restored hope and future. Now, here at Beach Haven, we just cover books of the Bible. Uh, this is not a passage I've ever heard anyone preach on before. Have any of you ever heard anyone preach on Obadiah 17 to 21? Anyone at all? Uh, me neither. Well, today will be a first. But we believe that every part of Scripture is inspired by God, it's truthful, and we need to learn, and we need to know what God says in verses 17 to 21 of Obadiah. We covered the first uh, 16 verses last week, and today we're looking at these last uh, several verses in the book of Obadiah. And here God makes it clear that he is the king, the savior, who fills Israel's future with hope. And beginning in verse number 17. Uh, in fact, I want to read a couple of pivot verses, and they're actually bookends in the text that really summarize the entire text. But on Mount Zion, in verse 17, there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, verse 21 is just like this. It's not identical, but it does repeat the same concepts. Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Uh, similar subjects. Um, the Bible teaches in Romans 15, 4, that the Old Testament is relevant to us. And so does 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, The Old Testament was written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so the Old Testament is to birth hope in the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, comments on all the promises of the Old Testament. And it says that all the promises of God in him, 
Christ are yes. You may read a promise in the Old Testament where God promises something to the upright and to the righteous, and you may conclude, I've not been very upright or righteous. But if you're in Jesus Christ, Jesus shares his righteousness. So the degree to which God would fulfill that promise to Jesus is the same degree to which he would fulfill it to you. Because you are in Jesus Christ if you've repented and believed in the gospel. And so this text in Obadiah is profoundly, profoundly relevant to us. It was written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture may have hope. And all the promises here, the moment a person comes into Jesus Christ, are yes from God. The promises here are not just for Israel, which I think will still be fulfilled, but are actually for all the people of God in all ages. So because God is King the Savior, He is able to saturate your future with hope. Well, what can we hope for then? Well, the first thing is this. We can hope for a physical future. We can hope for a physical future. Now, I want you to look with me in verse number 17 here. Verse number 17, and I want you to notice the physical references beginning in verse 17. There are some people that ask about the future and about prophecy and about eschatology, which is the study of last things. Are these things spiritual or are they physical? Is heaven spiritual or is it physical? Is, uh, is judgment spiritual or is it physical? Um, is the future kingdom spiritual or is it physical? We'll look at verse 17. On Mount Zion, and that's a physical place that we could locate, there shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob, a synonym for Israel, shall possess their possessions. Verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire. House of Jacob is a synonym for Israel. Now look at verse 19 and some of these place names here. The south, the south of Israel, southern portion, shall possess the mountains of Esau. I've been there with the group that's traveled to Israel. You can actually find the mountains of Esau. And the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And it goes on and on with different place names that Israel will own. And by extension, the people of God in Christ shall own in the future. Well, are these things physical or are they spiritual? Well, let me ask you a few questions here. When God created the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve, were those things spiritual or were they physical? Well, they were both, weren't they? Uh, what about the birth of Jesus Christ, his incarnation? Well, was that a spiritual or a physical thing? Well, it was both, wasn't it? What about when he was crucified on the cross? Was that a physical thing or was that a spiritual thing? Well, Jesus was crucified physically for physical sins and spiritually for spiritual sins. It was both. What about when he was raised from the dead? Was that physical or spiritual? Well, it was both. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout the major events of the scripture, God has a bias in favor of the spiritual and the physical. The future is not only a spiritual future, as important as that is. The future the materi is material and physical as well. But in, in the case of those who know Christ, it'll be a glorified, expanded, intensified, magnified, physical, material future and spiritual 
future. And the Bible makes this clear. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body only, but fear those who can kill both body and soul in hell. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says that uh, those in the grave will hear his voice and uh, those who've done the righteous thing will be raised to life and those that have done the wicked thing shall be raised to condemnation. Well, what's in the grave but a body? There is a physical, material, and spiritual future for the people of God. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important for several reasons. One, so that you can understand the scripture. And not be confused when there are physical references to the future and other items. Uh, it will help you to understand heaven. Heaven is not merely a spiritual place where we go when we die, although it is that. It is much more than that. When Christ returns, he's going to restore in a magnified form the Garden of Eden on the earth and reign for a thousand years on the earth. That's part of heaven as well. He'll eliminate evil, eliminate the devil, and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so that helps us to understand the Bible. It also helps us to value not just the spiritual, but the physical as well. And not just the physical, but the spiritual as well. We need to value all there is of life. The truth is, is that our physical life has as much to do with our walk with God as our spiritual life as well. We've got to get it all covered. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, the apostle prays that God would sanctify us entirely, spirit, soul, and body. And so all of these things are to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This also finally gives us a vision of the future. The future is going to be intensely spiritual and intensely material when God brings it to the earth for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ. It's going to be both. Now here's the point. God is so much the Lord over the future that his lordship is going to extend even to the most difficult places of life, and that includes the physical and the material. Can you imagine? What about those that were incinerated in World War II in a plane crash or an attack upon a tank? If they're believers, do you know what God's going to do? He's going to reassemble their body miraculously and raise them from the dead. What about those who've suffered some kind of corruption or obliteration through some kind of accident or some kind of ailment, but they knew Christ as Savior and God is going to put them back together and raise them from the dead? Let me encourage you with this. If God is able to do that with the body, God can do that with your future. It is a physical future. You can hope in a physical future. But that's not all. The text goes on and says you can hope in a second thing. And that is you can hope in not only a physical future, you can hope in a pure future. And that's what he says in verse number 18. Look at, the, um, look at the words that are used here. There's a powerful cleansing that comes here that will remind you of what you've read in the book of Revelation. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. When Obadiah wrote this, that's not what they were. They were pitiful. But God says, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to have purity comparable to a flame and a fire. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. Esau happened to be the perpetual century-old enemies of Israel. And God says, I'm going to turn them to stubble. 
They shall kindle them and devour them. No survivor shall remain in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This was true by A.D. 70. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were completely eliminated from the earth. Israel is a flame and a fire. By extension, God's people, God is going to bring a great, great cleansing of sin and evil. And in that, you can hope. Now, you may think, how in the world can I hope when there's going to be a cleansing of sin and evil? Shouldn't that frighten me? Hey, ask an addict. Ask an addict how much they would long and like to be cleansed from evil. I mean, they get to the point where they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they hope something will come to cleanse them. Think about someone that's been reckless in their morality and their sexual choices and have busted up their family and busted up their lives and have embarrassed and shamed themselves and no one trusts them. They would hope for a cleansing from evil and sin. What about those who are victims of injustice around the globe? or even in the nation. They would hope for a cleansing from evil and sin. And what about on a personal level? People want to get beyond their own sins and their own weaknesses and failures. They don't want to keep committing the same old sin over and over again. Ask them, ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest things that could ever happen would be to be cleansed from sin. And God says, I can do it. I can do it. On a personal level, today, God is able to take the fire of his promise and holiness and gently apply it to your heart and eliminate all your guilt before him because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and resurrection. And at the end of the message, you can make that decision to give your life to him. And he will do that. He will apply. He will apply his fire and flame to your heart and soul and he'll eliminate it. Personally, it can happen. And then it can also happen progressively. We get clean before God, and then the balance of our lives, he leads us and he strengthens us to overcome our sin and difficulty. So listen, let me say to you, God's still working on you. Don't get discouraged with where you are. If you're struggling, you keep walking with God, and eventually he's going to help you break loose from these things. If you know Christ, he's helped you break loose from guilt. That's no longer an issue. But as time goes on, he gives you more and more strength and helps you develop and grow in holiness progressively. And let me say to you, um, because of his grace, you're going to struggle with that more than he will. He's covered it with grace. And he's brought you to himself. If you know Christ, he's brought you to himself already understanding and knowing how many failures you will have. You'll be the biggest problem in overcoming your sin. God won't. You just keep coming back to him. And, and, and by the way, that leads me to, to, to address this. You've got to tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and satanic-inspired guilt. And there's a big difference. Whenever Satan begins to bother you or some demon host begins to bother you about your guilt, here's what will happen. There will be constant mental accusation. No matter how many times you confess it and trust the cross, constant mental accusation, and you'll want to run from God. When you want to run from God and when there is constant mental accusation, that is not from God. That is not what God does. When God begins to bother you about some sin of which, you're not on, uh, of which you're not aware, what God does is that he doesn't repel you, he draws you. He invites you. And he, he places a warmth in your heart and soul to come before him. And then the moment you confess, God, God doesn't accuse. That's not what he does. 
That's not what he does at all. Instead, he assures and he comforts. And so we've got to know the difference between the two. And so God can cleanse personally. He can cleanse progressively. And then eventually he's going to cleanse catastrophically. And that's why the book of Revelation appears as it does. And the kind of literature there is the only literature sufficient to describe the great universal, the great global, the great catastrophic cleansing from evil and sin to where God permanently and finally eliminates it from the earth. And it's not that God loses his temper and gets hacked off at people. That's not what he does. Instead, he is cleansing the earth of all evil to make it worthy for the return of Jesus Christ. He's making it worthy of a place where Jesus can reign and rule. He doesn't want sin to touch or even approach his son again. The cross was enough. He's had enough of that. And now Christ is coming to rule and to reign and God's going to cleanse it all. And there's coming a day when you get to live in that world and live in that land where there's no evil, no disappointment, no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. It's the land of no more. Isn't that a marvelous gift? That's what you can have in Jesus Christ. So he does it personally and progressively. He does it catastrophically as well. What a blessing from God because of his grace, because of the death and resurrection of his dear son. Hey, you know, God came up with this. I didn't invent this. The church didn't. What a great God to think about things like this. Would you have ever thought of something like this? Not me. This is the kind of thing God does. This is what God pulls off. This is what God arranges. And this is what God sacrifices his son for. He's really passionate about this cleansing because he loves us. You can hope then in a pure future. And you can have victory. Now before I move on from this point, let me uh, draw your attention for just a moment to Jeremiah 23 verse 29. And there, God asked the question, is my word not like a fire? The word of God acts as a burning influence against the interest of sin and the presence of sin in our lives. And the way to overcome then the weakness that you've got is to find power in the word of God. So immersing ourselves in that gives us victory and we need to have a plan to do that very thing. This is how far Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He can rule over the physical. He can produce the pure. But there's a third thing to hope in as well. Not only a physical future, not only a pure future, but you can also hope in a prosperous future, at least as the Bible defines it. Now, in verses 19 and 20, you find a lot of place names. And each of these places were places that Israel owned that God gave them and they lost through a series of invasions, uh, deportations, and terrible foreign invasion of their land. And that happened because of their sin, and they lost. So they lost the mountains of Esau, Philistia, Ephraim, Samaria, Gilead, land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, Sepharad, and the cities of the south. And God here is promising you shall possess them again. In fact, eight times... In this text, he says, you shall possess. Fifteen times, he says, shall or shall be. Fifteen times, promises reference to. Eight times, to possess. At the end of verse number 17, he said, the house of Jacob, I like this phrase, shall possess their possessions. Isn't that something? Shall possess their possessions. Many of those who know Christ as Savior have yet to take possession 
of their possessions. They don't know they're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. They've got as much love and favor as Jesus does. They can approach God the Father and plead with him that they might possess their possessions. In other words, there's a promise of a prosperous future in this text. Now, every one of these places in verses 19 and 20 were places of Israel's uh, loss, Israel's sorrow, and Israel's misery. And God promises, one day you shall repossess them. You know, our own nation needs a promise like this. Uh, the, the southern United States has been considered for more than a century the Bible Belt of America. But did you know the southern United States was not the first Bible Belt in America? The colonial, uh, the colonies in the Northeast were the first Bible Belt. And what I'm talking about is from Philadelphia north. That was the first Bible Belt. That was the scene of the first two great awakenings in the United States. All of the Ivy League colleges and universities were started to train preachers and missionaries in the Scripture. Can you imagine what it would be like for an enormous spiritual awakening to take place in that land again and for God to reclaim those places over, uh, over those and crown Jesus Christ as King and Lord. Frankly, I'd like for him to do it in the South again. How about you? We're not superior. We're not superior. Let me give you a little good news. Some of that might be happening on the West Coast. For about 40 years, California and the Christian faith out there has been one of the most forward-thinking and creative and effective approaches to the faith. That's why we don't criticize other churches and how they do things and their worship and stuff like that. We don't, we don't do that here. Some of the neatest things are taking place on the West Coast. I've watched it for several decades. I've benefited from it, in fact. And it's really, really neat what's taking place there. In fact, Southern Baptists alone, not including the other great Christian groups, but Southern Baptists alone have established so many Southern Baptist churches in California. There are now more Southern Baptist churches in California than South Carolina. South Carolina has a 150-year head start on them. Now, there's disproportionate um, uh, because of the po population considerations, but that's how effective they have been there. Maybe we're in a day when God is going to reclaim that land. There were some neat movements taking place prior and after World War II on the West Coast. In fact, Billy Graham got his launch because of a crusade he did in Los Angeles, California. Maybe we're coming upon a day where God is reclaiming spiritually those lands. Would not, that not be a marvelous thing to see? Here's what God says. God says, I'm going to do it in all of these lands where you've had loss and sorrow and misery. Listen, in Jesus Christ, your place of loss can become a place of gain. Your place of sorrow can become a place of joy. Your place of misery can become a place of victory. This is the kind of thing that Jesus Christ does in a life that will trust him. This is the hope you have for your future. Joel 2.25, God promises his people that after they've gone through enormous disaster at every level, he said, I will restore the years the locust has eaten. Locusts had come through and completely destroyed their crops. And God says, I'm going to restore those and restore them even more. And that's a promise God makes to you today. Again, remember, all the promises in him are yes. 
and in him, amen. God says, whatever you've lost in your life, however you've struggled, you come to me and I'm the God that can restore it all. I can give you a prosperous future. That's true for those who've suffered because of bad relationships or foolish choices or even moral failures. Here's the point I'm trying to make. There is nothing about your past that has to define your future. There is nothing about your past that has to hinder a future and a hope in your life. In other words, the future is wide open, unshackled, unchained from anything that's taken place in your past when you give yourself to Christ. It is up to, it is up to the choices you make under Jesus Christ what the future will be. The past does not have to be a limit. It doesn't have to hinder you. God says, I can give you a prosperous future. And he does that because he loves us. Tomorrow can be a glorious day. So listen, if God has forgiven your past, he is saving your future. That's what he's doing. Reminds me of the little boy that uh, went with his family to a kennel They wanted him to have a dog and the responsibility of a dog. And so they went to a kennel to purchase a puppy. And uh, the little boy and his family arrived about the time. uh, The puppies were coming up from a nap. And they came out and they kind of stumbled out and they were sleepy for a while. But there was one particular puppy that was thrilled and excited the moment he opened his eyes. I mean, his hindquarters were moving back and forth. His tail was wagging at supersonic speed. And the boy said, I want that one with a happy ending. You know, that's what you want too, isn't it? You want the one with the happy ending. And I'm telling you that in Jesus Christ, on the authority of the word of God, God can give it to you. God promises. God promises. If you'll open your heart to Jesus and if you'll follow him, you get the one with the happy ending, no matter what may come. Well, what do I do? Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, repent and return that you may experience times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And this promise is to you and your children and all those who are far off. In other words, you've got to stop some things and you've got to start some things. And the things you've got to stop are right here between your ears. Right here. You've got to stop thinking that you are irredeemable. You've got to stop thinking that you're unloved. You've got to stop thinking that you're hopeless. You have to stop putting shackles and chains upon your future. You've got to stop doing that. The Bible calls that repentance. That's one thing you stop. You change your mind. And you begin to believe that the future is as bright as the promises of God. And then you've got to deal seriously with Jesus Christ. You've got to start trusting Him. Trust that His cross is a commentary on our guilt and sin. It's serious. And your conscience is in an uproar so much so, you know that to be the case. You've got to admit that. But then you've got to believe that his death on the cross was all sufficient and enough for God to eliminate all of your guilt and all of your fear about the future. And that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is a great model of what he's about to do with you today. You've got to start believing that. And if you'll call on him today, he will do a great work in your life. He will start the one with the happy ending. Now, there's some of you today that have given yourself to Christ, and you've struggled too. Uh, You you do what God wants you to do today. Others of you have received Christ, and God wants you to become part of this church. We invite you to. Uh, For some of you, he wants you to follow him in baptism. 
All those that know Christ need to follow him in baptism like our two young friends did today. Maybe there's another need that you've got, but I want you to quickly stand with me, please. And I want to pray for you. And we're going to ask you to come. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for my friends today. And I thank you for doing a neat work in our lives today. Thank you for how you blessed us.